I have an entire rant prepared. That's hilarious. I'm like dying for that one. Our kids are beginning to learn German using Bob the Builder. Ah. Or should I say Bob der Baumeister? Sehr gut. Wunderbar. Seriously? <laughs> I've been getting random German phrases around the house. It's kind of weird. Wait, wait, what? <laughs> Seriously, German? Go home, you're drunk. <laughs> Snap! <laughs> I must admit, um, Alex, you're looking very dark. Yeah, it's because the lights are off. <laughs> I have tea, I'm happy. Do you know the, the, the only Beyonce song I know is the one that was in one of the Chipmunks films? Is it me you're looking for? The heroes are alive with the sound of their thing. Welcome to Troublesome Terps, a show about the things that keep interpreters up at night, apart from binge listening to podcasts, which apparently is a thing now. We're happy about that. Today we have an extra special episode, but before we even get to that, allow me to introduce my extra special co-hosts, who are always worth diarising. First off, we have the big brother of Troublesome Terps, but not in a strange 1984 surveillance kind of way, Alexander Drexel. Yes, good evening, everyone. Uh, diarizing is an interesting word, but we're not going to get into that right now. Um, it says I should say something mature in the script right now, but I'm not because I uh, actually wanted to suggest that we rename the podcast to The Brady Bunch for a reason that I'm not going to share right now. <laughs> this is going to be like part of Troublesome Terps lore. Like, why do they want to be the called The Brady, Brady Bunch? Bunch? We might share it at the live event. We yes, might share it, probably but un until then, you can actually let us know your theories on Twitter. Ooh. Yes. <laughs> and you heard him before. His laugh is unmistakable. Probably the most famous laugh in interpreting. Rounding out our troublesome triangle, we have the cheapy chat. Cheeky, chappy, and Lederhosen. I was about to say the cheeky man and chapstick. <laughs> <laughs> Alexander Gansmeyer. I actually have nothing to say there. I'm like at a loss for words now. <laughs> I win. <laughs> Just say something. Well, something. if you want me to come to the live event in my Lederhosen, please let us know on Twitter as well. <laughs> oh. Okay, we're going to put a Twitter poll out. Lederhosen? Oh yeah, or the nine? <laughs> oh, there you go. Yeah, or the nine? Das baby. <laughs> you really know something about content marketing, Jonathan. <laughs> yeah, that's very true. But yeah, as, as Jonathan was saying, um, today's show is quite unique because usually we spot interesting people or hot topics and build a show around them. But today we actually have handed the reins over to you, our listeners. And you guys have sent us a few questions. And this is going to be our very first Ask Us Anything episode or our as I've been uh, finding it on Twitter. Honestly, I found this, so I'm pretty happy that's a thing, especially <laughs> And in everything on Twitter is true. That is very as true. As we know. Um, there is actually one thing that I found out on Twitter that is true, and that's related to the topic, the Ask Us Anything, because uh, Corinne McKay and Yves Baudet of the Thoughts on Translation podcast also did an Ask Us Anything, but that was not related. It was their idea. That's true. This was our, our idea. We did not we did not coordinate this at all. But maybe at some point we'll do a, an Ask Us Anything together, all four of us or something. Well, and you know, great minds think alike, so I'm really looking forward to their episode. That'd be listening to uh, three plus two is five. 
Did I say four? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> that's, See, that's why I'm in languages and not a mathematics. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but so we've uh, gotten a few questions. Um, or actually, yeah, we've gotten a few more questions, but we picked the best of them, the most important ones of them that we found we could actually possibly answer a little bit. <laughs> and we're going to try to answer that today. And the emphasis is definitely on try to answer. Try. Oh. <laughs> well, you know, I, I, I did a, a job not so long ago uh, at a rugby match, and in rugby you get five points for trying, so, you know. Hey, <laughs> A for effort, which never made any sense to me, by the way. Yeah, because effort begins with E. Right? I have no idea what that means. This episode, can I just apologize to our listeners now? We didn't mean for this episode to have in joke after in joke, but that's just how it happens sometimes. Yeah, maybe we should just uh, move to the first question, shall we? <laughs> Thank you, Mr. Mature. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Yes. Um, the, actual, the first question was submitted by someone who preferred to stay anonymous. So we will, of course, uh, respect that wish. And the question was, I'll direct the question to Alex G and Jonathan first, because the question is the following. Do the interpreters with only, only two working languages ever feel bad, guilty, inferior for not having more passive languages? And how do they get over that feeling? Maybe let's start with that first bit first. Because in the second Jonathan? bit for you. Yes. Okay, I will start with two things. One, when you do business networking, you realize that being able to speak more than one language is a rarity in the UK. Um, <laughs> so that kind of helps. Um, the second thing is in the UK market, C languages are about as much use as economics as to the case for Brexit. <laughs> Hot take. <laughs> and, and, and so the, the, there's actually kind of I might be slightly controversial with this, but in the UK market, certainly as I've experienced it, there's really no point in a C language because every conference is kind of two-way or doing really into your B language or whatever. So, you know, I, I want to add the passive language. I, I actually would love to add passive German. I wonder where I can find people who speak German to practice with. I have no idea. Um, I, don't, I don't know. <laughs> I have no idea. Um, but I think the, the, the thing is, is that I realize if I was to add German, my clients would expect it to be active German. So I don't feel inferior at all. If, however, if I lived in, say, Brussels or Paris or Munich, I might feel inferior, but then I can say, hey, I'm a native Brit, and that kind of gets me away with things. Um, so it really is what you make of it and what your clients want. And if your clients are screaming at you for passive languages, well, maybe go add some. But if you've got enough clients and you're getting work, you don't really answer to any other interpreter for how many languages you have. Yeah, I couldn't agree, but still, I feel bad, guilty, and inferior every single day, I have to say. <laughs> no, but um, I think Jonathan is completely right, because I do think that on the freelance market, having a C language is... Uh, you can do it. I think in Germany in particular, it's really useful to have English as a C language, but anything except English is... Um, optional i guess before i say something wrong and really put my foot in it but you know i'm i'm learning italian right now and everybody keeps asking me oh you want to work with italian and i'm like well it's exactly like jonathan was saying like it would have to be an active italian and there is no way in hell that i'm ever going to get it up to an active b so i'm just doing it for the joy of it because i really think that an italian c is optional <laughs> <laughs> and it's uh, an italian c sounds slightly adriatic to me <laughs> That's true. Okay, brownie points for this one. That's really but, good. 
since you were talking about potentially optionally adding a, a C language, that that leads me to a somewhat controversial question because um, that would kind of open up the possibility of working from a C into a B, which uh, in some circles is very much frowned upon. Any ideas yeah, on that? Yeah, but I don't get why that is frowned upon. If you can work from your A into your B, why don't you work from your C into your B? Like, it never made sense to me, that, that whole thing. Exactly. So, and somebody, do you guys feel like that's fine? Well, there, like, there, are we all on the same page? There's right. kind of a neurological reason why they would say that. But interpreting studies doesn't know as much about interpreting as we like to tell people we know about interpreting. So the, the neurological reason is there is an assumption in the West, and I say Paris school, German school, that in, that B to A will always be your best combination and that you should always be doing most of your work into B to A because it's assumed that because you're going from your second language into the language that's most embedded in your brain, that you'll produce better output in your A than you would in your B. Therefore, hmm. the theory goes that if B to A is better, surely C to A is much better than C to B. And there is an assumption that if a language is your B, your production is going to be very good, but it's not going to be as good as in your A. Right. But then there's also the theory, right, that if yeah. you go from your A into your B, that you actually produce superior work because in your A language, you understand all the nuances and the entire yes. sense of the conversation much better than if you were to get it in your B. And that's why you can actually compensate for the lack of language skills in your B through the improved mm. understanding in your A. Yeah. So this is, that is the Russian school took the actually you're better going into the way I understand that the Russian school traditionally took that, yeah, go into your B, you'll probably get better off because you understand the nuances. The West Paris Heidelberg Germersheim mm, yeah. took they go into A, and I would have to ask a neurologist. But I'm my impression is that it's more important when you learn the language and how far you take it than it is anything else. Personally, at the moment, if some say if I had C German and someone said, "Could you go go German to French?" I would go probably not, but that would be for a linguistic structure reason rather than necessarily anything else. That's a good point, yeah. But if someone, you know, German to English, although, you know, you've got the old quote about um, a German sw uh, starts off a sentence and emerges like five minutes later with a verb start. Oh my God, and, yeah. Yeah, Mark Twain, <laughs> apparently. Um, but still, because English has Germanic stuff, and I would say that German to English is probably easier than German to French, hmm. would be my guess. Which... Yeah, because I was going to say that maybe you don't use C into B for just any job, but maybe just for a few, yeah. quote unquote, simpler jobs, or <laughs> right. you know, or you or you kind of look at what the language combination is, and um, as you said, if if the languages are closer together, then maybe that makes it easier. Or or for example, and here's a controversial one: if it was a choice of do C into B, or take or take really, then they were so. For instance, if the really was in your B. Not actually, mm. but you know, if it was a choice between take C into B or take really, then it probably makes sense to do C into B. In theory, um, no one actually knows. Um, the, <laughs> the, the reality is, and this is something that we have discussed on the show before, and I'm sure we'll come back to again. Most of our kind of modus operandi and in what is the, I don't know what the plural of that in the is. Interpreting space? Oh, yeah. <laughs> in, in inter the modi operandi? <laughs> Modi operandi sounds okay. It sounds Latin enough. Fake Latin's good enough for me. Um, most of our way that we work, um, <laughs> we're we're established quite early on, 
not necessarily on the basis of what we would now call hard scientific evidence. How open we are to reviewing that is a whole other question, and I think we covered that a bit in the research episode. But, you know, it could be, and here I'm very careful what I say, but it could be that some of our standard operating practices in interpreting were based on assumptions that turned out not to be true. But we don't know. Yeah. So before we get in any deeper into interpreting research, um, can we just um, wrap this up and say that you do not feel bad slash guilty slash inferior <laughs> no, about not, not having more passive languages? <laughs> no, I think that's fair to say, yeah. But on And that basically it boils down to you look at your market, you look at your customers, and if what you have works and you don't have to sleep under a bridge, that's fine. <laughs> Although I do have to say that if I find, I have found interpreters who have like five or six different C languages, some even more, but they're usually very related, right? Like it's usually like Italian, Spanish, French, sure. Portuguese yes. and whatever, or like a lot of Slavic languages, but it still kind of boggles my mind that all these people speak these languages, not to the level that they would be comfortable interpreting into them, but you know, like you can send them into the country and they would be able to converse with the people, even though it's like seven different languages I and mean, they might not be super, you know, comfortable doing it, but they could. And that just kind of like, that's crazy. Yeah. my mind. That's crazy stuff. I, I must admit, when you first said that, I thought you meant the interpreters were related rather than the languages. And I thought there was like this family of interpreters with 10 C <laughs> languages. Yeah, going around the EU. Going around the Austrian <laughs> countryside playing accordion, accordions. I have no idea why. <laughs> the heroes are alive with the sound of interpreting. <laughs> sound of interpreting. <laughs> right. But before, before Alex, before you think you <laughs> yes. got away scot-free, the question actually continues because it continues... If yes. we feel bad, guilty, or inferior, or if conversely, the institutional interpreters with lots of passive languages ever wish they just were fully bilingual in English or any other major European language and their mother tongue. So, Alex. Mm. That is actually a very good question. <laughs> yeah, he is um, bilingual. It's annoying. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, I've, I've thought about this a, a little bit and... Um, it is true that on on average or overall, EU interpreters have more passive languages simply because they need to, um, uh, because we have to cover so many languages. And we also, you know, we, we get support for learning new languages and adding new languages. So that's a little bit easier than when you have to do it on your own time and your own dime, basically. Um, so I think that's one factor. Um, and, and there are indeed, there are, there are colleagues who have like, have several passive languages and, and many of them are related. So maybe they have French, Spanish, Italian, and maybe added Romanian a couple of, of years ago, that kind of thing. But there are also colleagues who have um, Maltese, Hungarian, and then maybe Spanish and Dutch, and then maybe, <laughs> you know, something Christ. else, which is completely crazy and doesn't make any sense to me. But it works. They can certainly hold their own in a conversation, which I think is absolutely, absolutely fascinating. Um, and when it comes to feeling bad about not being fully bilingual, first of all, I would question if that's even true when you only have quote-unquote, one or two working languages, are you then fully bilingual? I think that's a good discussion to be had, but maybe in another show. Um, yeah, that's like a full-hour discussion. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But I think I, I, I know where the person is, is getting it. I think, uh, anyway, what I was trying to say is that even when you have a lot of passive languages, you still will have, maybe it's your first working language, maybe it's your favorite working language, you, you'll still have one right. that is kind of closest to your heart and that you're really, really very good at, mm -hmm. and maybe you spend all your holidays in that country that kind of thing. So you'll still be quote unquote bilingual and will have one language that is very, you know, that you, that you just master very well. Um, and another thing is that 
um, some of the colleagues in the EU institutions work into a B language as well. It's not as common as it is on the private market, but some of us, including myself, we do work into a foreign language and um, in specific kinds of meetings. So that that is maybe just one more thing to bear in mind here. I actually find it funny, and this is not even part of the question anymore, but it's part of the, the, the comment that we received by this anonymous um, person that asked listener? us this question, by this anonymous <laughs> listener, yeah. because they actually wrote that this topic is very close to their heart because they have a double A and they're attempting to add more languages and they're finding it difficult psychologically and linguistically. And I'm think, I was, when I read the question, I'm, I was thinking, there are, I know for a fact that there are people out there that would kill to be a double A in two languages that were actually in demand in your market. So I think you can really milk that for a lot. And at the same time, I really get what they're where they're coming from because adding a language is really difficult linguistically and definitely also psychologically. I actually have a friend of mine who is Italian A and then German English B. And she's married to a German. She lives in Germany. And, you know, I, I was talking to her about this, you know, with the whole Italian thing um, going on. And uh, just the amount of work that she has to put in to keep all mm. three languages, you know, on par is just mind boggling. I have like mm. no idea how, it, I, and that's, that's also why I'm thinking it's really difficult if you're working in the market and if you're, um, if you're having enough work, then where do you find the time to actually put it in mm. to a third language or maybe even a fourth language? And it's, yeah. it just boggles my mind. So if you have a double A and it works in your country, I think everything else is kind of it's kind of like for, for, for me, my Italian is kind of like a fun side project that I'm doing. And then I'm just going to see where it goes. But there is no pressure. And I think if you're a double A and two languages that are in demand in your country, you can do that too. Just see where it goes. No pressure. I, I think what, one of the things I would want to say to, to the person who posed the question and also to other interpreters, especially young interpreters on their journey, is that it, we don't have a profession where the criteria are completely set. Um, yeah. For better or worse, interpreting is largely unregulated, especially conference interpreting is largely unregulated. Business interpreting is unregulated. And the fact that you can set up your business and decide, okay, within the realms of economic plausibility, you can say, okay, I want to, I've got, you know, I've got double A, which a lot of people would kill for. I'm going to, just I'm going to aim to serve this kind of client, you know, the, the client for, for whom those two right. languages are their thing. Mm-hmm. You know, if other interpreters come up and say, well, you should really have a third language, you have the right to say to them, actually, my business plan says, no, I don't. Yeah, that's right. Totally true. You don't have to. And I wish we would, we would kind of teach people this, that, you know, everything we've ever said about interpreting is guidelines. And I love someone wrote, um, rules there's a book called i think i think it's like 101 things that every translator should know and the last one is um follow the rules but break them if you feel you have to (laughs) and i and and they said you know every rule is context bound including this one and i think that that's brilliant to be able to say to (laughs) people okay you know there are standard profession professional operating procedures and you know we've got to be professional and all this stuff but within that if your market is allowing you to have a double A and you're working with clients in a, in a field that you feel passionate about, go with that and don't let anyone ever tell you that you need to have, you know, Russian at C or Arabic at C or whatever. Just be the best interpreter you can with the stuff that you have. Mm, and right. that, that interpreter will be enough. I mean, it, 
so, some of us are having to think, you know, about the financial consequences of politics and stuff going on. But we are still business people. We get to make a decision. I don't think uh, Apple ever sit there and go, I really wish that we could do a laptop to look more like Dell's. Of course they don't, you know. No one's ever said that. Yeah, yeah, but you know, like <laughs> Microsoft don't sit there and go, I wish we could ha- our designs could look more like Apple. No, they go and do their thing. And the people who want their thing buy it. That's how it works. Yeah, that's true. But maybe to, to wrap this this one up is, um, I like how you said that interpreting is a profession, not so much of rules, but of guidelines. Mm. But I think that that makes it difficult for people who get come into the profession because let's be honest, we really like having rules and you know things to, <laughs> to live room. by and work by, especially when we start out. Because when you when you start out, it's it's kind of difficult mm. to just uh, make stuff up as you go along. That's I very guess. true. Mm. Yeah, um, and yeah. Also, just on that notion, I know we want to wrap this up and move on to the next question. But especially in the beginning, don't put as many languages on your business card as you can. Because I did that. And that really came around to bite me in the butt one time because I do have a degree in Spanish. So technically I wasn't even lying, but I didn't speak any Spanish. So technically I was lying. And then, yeah. you know, at a job for German English, one, one of the, the delegates actually was like, oh, I saw you also have Spanish. Like, could you help me with this email? And I was like, sure. Like, well, like, what do you say? You're sitting right there next to them at the coffee break. There's no excuse. And then he showed me the email and I literally didn't understand a word of the email. Oh, no. So, yeah, so I just had to go be like, well, you know, it's a very short coffee break and I'm going to have to really go to the bathroom. And I just made up some like ridiculous <laughs> thing. And the next day I changed my business card and never looked back. So don't just add Good languages you. because you're thinking it's going to help you business. Why did you yeah, because action? that is actually one of the very few hard and fast rules of interpreting yeah. is that you don't accept jobs that you're not qualified well, for. Well, I was qualified for the job that I was doing, but I was not qualified in any yeah, way to look at it. You know what I mean. Yeah. <laughs> Conversely, there's an extra rule which is always have something up your pocket with... Uh, up your sleeve which isn't in your business card so my favorite yeah. booth mate we were at a deep sea fisheries policy job and one of the people there decided to speak gallic and laura just, <laughs> laura just pressed the, the turn mic on button and delivered fluent perfect english and i was like oh that's awesome, awesome. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that because, awesome. because every meeting has that speaker who's trying to get one over on the interpreters and there's some yeah. kind of Surely that I don't think that happens at the European institutions, but on the freelance market, you meet them all the time. And yeah. it's such a nice feeling when they've tried to get one over on you and you're just like, score one for us. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. and they usually you're announce actually just it. returning the serve. Yeah. yeah, exactly. They usually announce it to and they're like, I'm really sorry for the trend for uh, for doing this to the translators, but you know, dot dot dot. Yeah, yeah. You know. Or the, the the line that I think should be banned from every conference. I wonder how the interpreters are going to handle this. Yeah, yeah, I is know. This on the, well, you know, is this I, on the the bingo sheet? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I was just going to say, I think somebody should do like a, an interpreting bingo. Let's see. Yeah. Who comes up with that? What's so, the the, exactly. the next question is actually is one of my favorites. It's a topic that comes out a lot, and this yeah, comes this from Veronica from Mexico. Hi, Veronica. Hi, Veronica. And she said, Hola. "How do you manage to stay in control when the speaker is lecturing at the speed of light?" Alex is probably thinking of a Spanish speaker, <laughs> wasn't she? Probably. Well, first of all, there's a great coping technique that I always use when a speaker is really fast. You switch off your microphone, you take a look at your booth partner, and you take a deep breath. <laughs> I thought you were going to say you yeah, turn off the mic and you leave the booth and <laughs> never to be seen again. <laughs> well, that's the second step because you take a deep breath and then you run for it. But, <laughs> yeah, exactly. No. But, your um, turn. Exactly. Oh. 
my mic doesn't work anymore. Sorry. No, but um, again, there's there's different schools of thought to this, and I really like the fact that what? How are you guys laughing? What, did I? It's good. Keep going. Keep going. <laughs> this is gonna be a great episode. Right, okay. <clears throat> yeah, I'm gonna fix this in post. No, don't. Because imagine like all of our <laughs> listeners are listening to this on like their daily commute, and it's really drab, and outside it's raining, and all of a sudden they just start laughing. That would be really fun. <laughs> yeah. Oh, anyway. We're here to serve. Any- <laughs> I know. Yeah, but honestly, I think again, there's two schools of thoughts to, uh, of, of thought to this, and one is the the kind of like summarize approach, mm. like kind of try to condense what the speaker is saying, and the other one is kind of like what I mostly do, because I have a very very short decollage. Um, you just kind of stick with it. But mm. the trick with that is I think you can't make it sound rushed, even though it is. You have to make mm. it sound appealing. Otherwise, it's very jarring to the listener. Because I think it, speed in language isn't necessarily a bad thing. It's just a bad thing if it mm. sounds uncomfortable. But there is a way to make most things, even if they're very fast, sound good or at least um, good enough to the listener. Um mm. And quite frankly, I just don't have the brain capacity to... I, my my decalage is just not long enough to do the whole summary thing. So I don't even... Try. I tried a few times, but that just like really throws me off. And it takes so much mental capacity out of the rest of the job thing. to have a really long decalage. And then I usually kind of start freaking out. And I'm like, oh my God, I'm about to lose him. And then that doesn't really help. So I've just, mm. I've just stopped doing that. Um but yeah, I think you can do both. If you can do both, I think it's great. I think there's nothing wrong with um, the summary element, even though I always do wonder if the speaker speaks really fast. And I mean, the, the, the audience, even though you know, they're listening to the interpretation, they're sitting in the room and they, they will speak. notice. Yeah. yeah, they notice that the speaker is going super fast. And then they hear somebody going like, and then, ladies and gentlemen, I would like to... Uh, point out these figures all smooth yeah and, calm. and i'm like well there's gonna be some sort of a disconnect but then i wonder if people that's true here if if they feel like they're getting the information that is being conveyed so i, I don't know um mm. but we, yeah we, we should get every director on the show she has a fantastic book chapter on that topic um yeah, I was going to give this one to Alexander Drexel, actually, because my impression from people who work at the European institutions is that speed is a massive factor there. Um, I know certainly from, kind of I've problem. met a couple of European Parliament interpreters, and their line to me was, if you can't deal with speed, you can't work there. Um, I don't know Which if it's the true. same at other parts <laughs> of the of the institutions. I still can't get over that they're called institutions. But, you know. Um, <laughs> they're called institutions for a reason, John. <laughs> I wasn't going to make that joke. Um, but yeah, so is it, from from what I've heard from other interpreters who work with international organisations, it seems to be that speakers being in a rush tends to be their kind of default setting there. Um, mm, yeah, well, maybe it's not, sorry, were you... No, I was just going to pass over to yeah. you. Maybe it's, it's, it's maybe not the default setting, although that there are some settings situations where it is the default so that the classic really part of institution law if you will is the ep plenary meeting which happens every month um and what they have as part of a plenary is i think they call it one minute speeches where basically um meps can stand up and talk for one minute about whatever 
they want to mm. talk about. And usually, of course, you don't get the script before. Mm. You may not even know what the topic is going to be. It may be an MEP that you rarely hear who is trying to, you know, seize the occasion, try to get something into the minutes or into the discussion somehow. So that really, I've never done it myself, thank God, <laughs> but I've heard a few war stories about it. And apparently it really, really is tough. And you basically sit like that and you try, you know, sort of, you try to survive the whole thing. Um, so that's one thing. And the other thing is, which I guess also happens on the private market quite a bit, and uh, which is read out speeches. Oh, yeah. And oh, how we love Since it. most people, <laughs> yeah, <sighs> let's pull one out. Um, since most people don't write for speaking, I mean, th these are texts, texts that are usually not written by speechwriters who know what they're doing. Uh, these are usually very dense texts with lots of information, lot of, lots of data in it, read out at lightning speed because there's a limitation on speaking time and you have, you have an allotted slot that you have available and your speech is actually way too long for the allotted time that you have. So you kind of read it out and try to get it all in. Um, the thing is that very often you do get a manuscript and you can sort of take a look at it beforehand and, you know, highlight the most important things. And then you can focus on that when you interpret. Um, but I think those, those would be the, the sort of the two things that happen quite often. So read out speeches, which are too dense, mm. uh, or which are very dense and hence make it very difficult, um, for the interpreter and the sort of whole one minute speech mm. thing in, in the parliament. I mean, I think. It's really common to get it on the private market. When you're saying about read out speeches, my nightmare and every kind of non-governmental international organization seems to have one. And that is the 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 converted Eurocrat doing a read out speech in their third or fourth language. Um, I got one at one association conference and it was someone who I think had a background in the European institutions and got a job in this association doing something. And I can't, I don't think it was right to say where she was from, but need, needless to say, it was evident that, that the speech that she was reading out, she had written and English was definitely not her, her first language. I would doubt it was even her second either. Mm. Um, and I mean, the rest of the speakers were pretty much fine. But she just kind of shuttled along this speech with international organization law and arcane and jargon and just went boom for 20 minutes. And there were, I think, eight of us on that job. And we were all literally like holding onto our desks, trying to just get through this. Yeah. And if that happens at the top of a job, you feel like a loser. Because, yeah. you know, you get the chairman's introduction and let's face it, most interpreters could do the German introduction for them because it's always <laughs> the same thing. You know, if you're in Scotland, the chairman's going to say, exactly. It's, it's always the same speech at the start of every single conference meeting thing. And then they start giving the people, and I, I, my nightmare is converted Eurocrat that's got a job in, in this organization speaking in their 15th language, or they decide to put finance guy who has given everyone eight pages of accounts to read and wants to go through every figure on every page. Yeah, they basically turned an uh, turn. They basically turned an Excel spreadsheet into a speech. Oh, um, I'm kind of yeah. into that though. Like um, the whole super fast finance stuff. I'm like a it, sucker for punishment on that one. It, it, oh. let, let, let's just say my entire when I'm going into French. If it wasn't for the French word environ, I wouldn't be able to do that stuff. <laughs> it's like my most used word. I use it even more than je. <laughs> 
<laughs> no, actually, but I mean, yeah, that, that's that's the thing. So we we had a few things there. So uh, not enough speaking time. Um, reading out a written speech that is not intent that is not properly oralized. I could I could probably say, and then that um, it's that you have to speak in a language that is not your strongest language, and maybe you have a manuscript that isn't great, and you're really just trying to get get the whole thing behind you. So I. I, 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 I did, did we actually have any tips, though? So, <laughs> Except for so, taking a deep breath. So I, I, Alex did the summarizing or stay with. My kind of revelation through doing the PhD was asking the simple question in your head when you look at the agenda, what's mm. the speech there for? And who's, Good point, and who, yeah. who's listening? So, mm -hmm. for example, in that speech that I did at the association when it was a converted Eurocrat, it was evident that all they wanted out of that speech was something like, you know, uh, what's our current position with regards to certain European laws? Mm -hmm. They didn't really care about all the detail of the names of, uh, of like the numbers of the law and whatever, because they understood through keywords what that law was going to be. And it wasn't until she finished, yeah. I realized actually no one's fully listening. They're just listening for the law that affects their business being mentioned and what they need to do to not get sued. Right. Yeah. And I think a related uh, thing is probably uh, that, that might help you is when speaker the speaker uses a presentation, which is almost always the case, yeah. and all the figures are on the oh, presentation. Oh, my God, of course, yes, I love it. Especially if you're interpreting into French, you know, with those weird numbers, ah. then you just say, you know, look at the slides. Yeah, yeah. The numbers are here. <laughs> where are the numbers in French? Are we going to get into this debate? No, we're not. <laughs> no, we're not. Nobody <laughs> ever wants to get into French numbers. Try <laughs> on Spanish? That's totally sensible. That makes a lot of sense, and I'm not going to... Yeah stand for nothing else no. and maybe just to pick up on the the decollage or ear voice span or whatever you want to call it because that's a running thing as well I now <laughs> like it's I, I guess there are probably two i don't know if there are two schools but i would probably go with alex there uh and and probably stay pretty close to the original mm. what about you jonathan i'm from the west of scotland so fast does not scare me slow <laughs> freaks me out um, oh yeah. My biggest problem is so, like you know, I grew up where if you pronounced your consonants, there was something wrong with you. Hmm. So, so, so <laughs> I, I can totally do fast. If you want me to do fast, I can do it. My concern is that when we fall for the just stay with them, you have to be super good to keep your enunciation up, especially in to be. Yes. And so this is where I like Alex Alex Kansmeyer's point about. They still have to have like a good experience. It still has to be usable yeah. for them. So that's the temptation. But I mean, let's face it: if you skip every fourth sentence or whatever, no one's going to notice. Um, there's a, yeah. there's a really good paper by Jemaine Napier on purpose uh, strategic omissions. She's talking about sign language interpreting, but let's be controversial here. There is a place for it, and the fact is that at certain speeds you just won't get everything. You just have to deal with that and just get on with it and sound confident. Um, my concern is, though, with when I have a slow speaker, there's always a temptation to drop in a filler, and there's oh, nothing yeah. there's nothing worse <sighs> than when you drop yeah. in a filler and it turns out to have been the wrong one. Yep. <laughs> so there are only so many times that you can say, as I was saying previously, before you realize that the speaker isn't recapping on anything they said previously. 
they were actually making a completely new point. Yes. <laughs> yes. And then yeah, you have to, like, kind of add in what they said previously to make... Uh, so forget it. Um, so, yeah, yeah slow... <laughs> if, if someone could teach me how to deal with speakers who go, ladies and gentlemen... Actually, you know, <laughs> I, I think that... Um, the, the biggest challenge with slow speakers for most people, yeah, I'm, I'm being one right now. Now, what I was trying to say is, uh, the, as I was trying to say before, uh, I think the problem with slow speakers is that many interpreters are afraid to be silent mm. for various reasons, I guess. And I think if you can somehow manage to deal with it and, you know, if the speaker is just so slow that you say nothing. I guess that's already that's already first step, like a good step. But to be fair, I do think that most interpreters would sign on to the fact that if you have a slow speaker, you str you feel like you struggle more than if you have a fast speaker. Mm. So I think actually, agreed. Yeah. I think most colleagues would prefer a speaker that is too fast than a speaker that is too slow. Yeah. You know, also for the placement of the verbs in the different languages. Like eventually, there's only so much time that you can wait to use a verb, and then you know. Fingers crossed, yep. it's the right one, and you can somehow make it work. But um, I was, I, as you guys were talking, um, there was another thing where I was thinking sometimes not all approaches work because mm. I was doing a job um, for. Well, actually, no. Let me give you a different example. There was another. There was a colleague of mine who was going on to a teleshopping network and interpreting a teleshopping. <laughs> that wasn't not me, but. Um, there, you you know, the, the people are obviously like super excited to introduce the latest shampoo or, or what have you. And they're super excited and they're speaking really fast. So if you have some, and you, again, it's one of those things where even if you watch it on television, you can still hear the original talking in the background. And um, if you then have somebody who goes, and this shampoo will make your curls absolutely beautiful and silky. When the other guy goes, you know, 100 miles an hour, then I think you're losing the impact. And I think those are the my two main takeaways. Like, make it sound appealing, make it a, a good experience for the listener, but also don't lose the impact, whichever mode you choose out of the two. Because then, obviously, what's the point? Yeah, and I think that this is, we're going to add all of this down anyway. Um, <laughs> we, 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 we. I'm just going to put in chapter marks, and then you, you guys can just <laughs> the, switch to the next the, question. I, I think we will go to the next question soon. I think the the main thing for me to I mean, if we wrap this up, it's a case of we are not there. The The end goal of interpreting is not to get every word perfect. The end goal of interpreting is that the clients can do what they're trying to do with the meeting. Yeah, that's right. Ouch. Didn't, uh, but yeah. <laughs> didn't somebody say on Twitter recently, but this was a completely different discussion, that interpreting is not there for the interpreters, it's there for the clients? Yes. Yeah, I didn't agree to yeah, the point was, that that was being that was being made at that time, but I think it applies to a lot of different situations across interpreting. Yeah. So yeah, that was from Jonathan Reckman from the um, article about phone interpreting. Yes. Yeah, let's. We're let's, if we do <laughs> another episode on remote interpreting. We're getting exactly. <laughs> anyway, yes. get an expert. So yeah, let's let's. Are we ready to move? Yeah, on? let's move on, move on to the next question, okay. and uh, we. When it comes to this show actually going into post, we'll just send like an entire list of edits. <laughs> <laughs> All yeah. right, this is a this is a fun question. It's a little bit flattering, but I'm going to read it <laughs> anyway. It's from uh, from Jana Zida from Slovenia. Um, she had one question. As all of you are busy as bees, interpreting and doing other stuff, and family and free time, um, free time. What kinds? <laughs> yes. Do you know what that no. is? 
<laughs> what kinds of magic do you use to agree on recording dates and how do you find and choose the topics? So this was basically basically about the, the process that we use for uh, making this show. Um, and those of you who subscribe to the ITI Bulletin will know about this already because we wrote, Alex and I wrote a whole article about that. Um, explaining the, the entire process, but we can give you a, a short version, I guess. That's right. Um, yeah. the, the very short version, the TLDR is basically we use technology. <laughs> um, yep. So for agreeing dates, we use Doodle, which I think a lot of people use, uh, which is a great uh, tool to, <laughs> to diarize. avoid to diarize stuff exactly it, um, it's it's a wonderful tool to send uh, me invites to tell you what time i'm available and for me to forget for about two weeks <laughs> and, yeah so the idea is that you, you avoid all the email back and forth on when would be a good time to meet and talk about this but you just send out this um thing you pick a few dates from the calendar and, and then everybody can just you know check the availability and then you pick the date that works best for everyone mm -hmm. so that's it it's uh the products from from switzerland which is one thing i really like about it. it's it's doodle.com if if you haven't used this before but i, do you like I have it? a feeling many people have used this do you like it for hashtag gdpr Reason? i don't know yeah i think it's from switzerland so it must be it must be it's good right right it's it, GDPR it, it's, it's either compliant or it's stuffed in a vault somewhere because it's swiss <laughs> Yeah. Well, actually, you don't have to collect any data. You can just, you can just, uh, you, you can either put in your name or you can just put in a nickname or whatever, you know, that's fine. Yeah. And, and uh, I, I think that's the thing is that, yeah, let's make this the quick question. But yeah, if it wasn't for technology, we couldn't do this because right now what people might not realize is you're going to be listening to the audio. We'd actually watching each other on video um, through Zoom. Yeah, that's correct. So that's the the second biggest piece of technology that we use. Zoom it's it's similar to Skype, so it's a video conferencing solution. Um, we just um, we've tried several things in the past actually, and, and Zoom seems to uh, seems to work most reliably. Um, so it allows us to see each other. So that's good to avoid uh, too much over talk and you know people talking over each other and stuff like that and we can use the visual cues and 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 so on and so forth um, and zoom also allows us to record in the cloud so um, I can get uh, recordings from the other two co-hosts which I then use for editing um, yeah and for editing I, I use a piece of software called uh, Reaper which is a digital audio workstation that many musicians use um, and I use Reaper together with a, it's basically a plugin, getting very nerdy now, but I'll keep it brief. Uh, it's called Ultraschall, um, uh, ultrasound. So that, that just puts some podcast specific functionality into the Reaper digital audio workstation. So I'll throw the recordings from Zoom in there. Um, I'll edit it down. I'll, I'll, I'll add our music. Um, and when I have the first draft, I send it out to Alex and Jonathan through Google Drive or something like that. And then they can, they can provide feedback and say, please cut this, please, you know, do this X, Y, and Z. And then we have a, a little bit of back and forth over the edits. Uh, and then I'll do the, the final version. And once we have the final version, we upload it to our uh, website, which is, uh, which runs on Fires, Fireside. Yeah. Fireside. Yes. Uh, which is a, a, a solution to host your podcast, quite simply. So um gives you a website, you just upload your audio. Um, then Alex puts in all the metadata and the show notes, and he makes a nice little image um, for the for the episode. Uh, then it goes live. Uh, 
and that's basically it i think i mean I, in terms of process there's a there's a couple of things as well when it comes to topics um we had a conversation oh, like five six episodes back about the more podcasts you do the more ideas for topics you have yeah so it, it's <laughs> that's like that's over, over two years ago we had the the first episode and we had no idea how long this would actually last we still have no idea how long this is going to last um, <laughs> but but you know, we started with I think it was um, on machine interpreting, which is a topic we've revisited, and we should probably revisit again. And yeah, good idea. And, and and the thought was that we would only really pick the controversial things because no one was talking about this stuff. And there was a realization that, well, certainly I've realized that almost every topic is controversial to someone. Um, in, in <laughs> every episode, we'd have thought, "Oh, this one's going to get us in trouble." The feedback's been great. And occasionally when there's been an episode and I've thought, oh, that's, that's tame, that's not going to cause any issues, then the big discussion starts. <laughs> I have no <laughs> idea why that is. Um, so we, we get ideas from topics from things going on in the, the interpreting news. We get ideas from topics from listeners send us things. Social media. Social media. Yeah. I think we have like our topic catalog for things we want to cover. It's probably about, we've probably got like the next 12 episode topics <laughs> sitting in Google Drive folders. <laughs> I know. Um, and the thing is, is that there's nothing to stop us going back to topics again and, and things do move on and things change. That's right. And also sometimes, so one of the things that I've noticed has triggered a lot of episodes is we see really interesting people and we think, you know, we really need to get that person on. Um, a prime example was Judy Jenner, all three of us knew or knew of, but Yoon Mingus, who was on the same show, the Alexis trusted me that he was a good guy to have on the show. And actually, he was a really good guy to have on the show. He was, and, yeah. And so was we now have, I'll, I'll let everyone into a secret, we now have like a, a discussion thing on Slack. And when we suggest someone, we have this discussion of, are they more a Lang FM person or are they most a trou- more a troublesome Terps person? <laughs> <laughs> you know, like if they're if they're some like True. serious high filleting expert without a long deep story, then they're Lang FM. If it's a <laughs> nutcase, then one of us. <laughs> <laughs> I think it summarizes it in a nutshell. <laughs> yeah. Although we we might have kind of an overlap yeah. project coming up. Yes. So that's that's hey. the teaser for this one. <laughs> well, yeah. Actually, I mean, if, if we think back, I first met Alexander Drexel. So I met Alexander Gansmar because we were both on the ITI board at the same time. Then he ran away. Um, <laughs> Flew away. <laughs> no, he went but, back, actually. He came back. <laughs> but I, I met Alexander Drexel, I think, possibly through Lang FM because he invited me to be on Lang FM, probably instantly I regretted did. it as soon as the recording started. Um, <laughs> no, no. And, and then I think I actually sent him an email and said, do you know Alexander Gansmar? And I think the response back was something like, well, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> everyone knows everyone in the airplane. Um but yeah so I don't see us running out of any of ideas for the next year but please do send us topics because there are issues I mean I noticed in this ask us anything this awa that um <laughs> there, there are topics that I hadn't even thought of that people have sent us which are amazing that's yes. right absolutely that's true um so you mentioned two things though so we use slack for all the communication around the podcast and other stuff as well we have one channel in slack which is called off topic and that's all i'm going to say about that <laughs> if you're coming to and the live use... event you'll know what we mean 
Uh, yeah, exactly. If you know um, what I mean. And then we use we use Google Docs and Google Sheets and all the Google collaboration solutions yeah. quite a bit. That's true. Yes. Even during the show, sometimes <laughs> we we also really like the word solutions, and I'm not sure why. <laughs> well, Can it's we? what we use in the interpreting space, Jonathan. <laughs> Bingo! <laughs> <laughs> oh, that, that right, let's move. Can we move on? Let's move yes, on. Yes, let's yeah. move it along. We, we've had a question from Katya Stöver. She, she's a friend of the show, and she sent us a really long question. And it boils down to, given the speed at which we work, given the the profession, do we consciously work according to our gut feeling or do interpreters let themselves be guided by their intuition to guess what the speaker wants to say? What do we think? So you actually already interpreted a little bit into that because the question wasn't phrased. So I was reading the question and I immediately went into the booth um, Mm. as well, like you just did, but she doesn't actually spell it out. So I'm guessing though, she means what we do in the booth if we work with the gut feeling because... um, Mm. Yeah, she does say that normally, you know, everything must be rational in the free economy, and, so <laughs> and I do think that if you, if she, if you're talking about outside mm-hmm. the booth, you should probably make entrepreneurial decisions on a rational basis as far as possible. Um, but in the booth, uh, it's not just gut feeling, obviously, mm-hmm. but I think a lot of it is. I think a lot of how. It's just kind of like with the speed thing, right? Like you have kind of have to, and this comes with experience, so it's difficult mm-hmm. to to um, say this to people just coming into the market, but you kind of have to know yourself and how far you can go without having to wait for the speaker. It obviously helps if you've done the event like 25 times and you know, okay, mm-hmm. now this is the guy who's going to ask the troublesome question and then this is going to be the C, uh, the CFO and the CFO is always going to be saying this. And, you know, like those kinds of patterns do repeat. So in those instances, you're kind of on, on safer ground, but sometimes you're on shakier mm-hmm. ground. And then I think the best bet is to have your intuition say, hang on a second, maybe you want to take a sip of water now and actually wait what they have to say because it can go really wrong Mm. sometimes. But Mm. I do think it's a good mix of your experience and uh, yeah, and your intuition. Well, I think sometimes it's also difficult to differentiate between is it, is it gut feeling? Is it instinct? Is it experience? Is it routine? Is it sort of just chunking of things you've done so many times in the past? Um, Yeah. Maybe, maybe we, We'll have to revisit this at some point because it um, it's going very deep. And I think she she was um, inspired uh, for this question by another podcast yeah. she was listening to, which was a which was specifically about women in the workplace uh, and how I don't know if that's if that's true or if that's just anecdotal. Women might be more, you know, influenced by gut feeling. I think that's that's kind I mean, of where the question came from. So, on an interpreting basis, if I put my researcher hat back on. Um, I am a practicing interpreter. We need to get you an actual researcher head at some point. <laughs> See, I, okay, I have to say that I am a practicing interpreter as well as being a researcher. Um, actually, the, the two worlds collide all the time. But the answer is, and I, I was chatting to Killian Sieber, who's arguably the world's leading expert on the cognitive side of interpreting. And if you were to ask him, you know, how much of interpreting is gut feel, how much of it is rational, logical decision-making, he'd probably just look at you and go, I don't know, um, because... <laughs> nah, he'd have something 
it's something it cheeky has, to say. <laughs> of course it'd have something cheeky to say, but it would boil down to I don't know. Uh, yeah. He would ask you to define what you meant by gut. <laughs> but I, I think <laughs> For a given definition uh, of gut. But I think this is the problem is that interpreting goes so quickly. Yeah. Trying to pin down what's going on is really, really hard. Now, I, yeah. I, I say this semi-jokingly, but my life got a whole lot easier when I stopped assuming that human beings were rational. <laughs> no, seriously, because... And this, again, is controversial, but often what we mean by rational is I can predict what they're going to do. And mm. as much as we like to think that there's such a thing as, you know, objective rationality, history and science and psychology tells us that actually that's an illusion anyway. R- rationality is, divine, is defined by what the individual thinks is rational or what society says is rational. So, you know what is rationality anyway that's a philosophical discussion but you know if you're interpreting and you just have to say stuff (laughs) so chris durbin once said to me the um translators are self-critical interpreters are (laughs) self-confident and that's kind of unfair because i don't know about anyone else i step out the booth nine times out of ten i go I wish I could have done better with that and I'm going to work on this. But there has to be something of, you know what, I'm going to dive in and I'm going to do this. And would you call that gut? Would you call that your training kicking in? In my case, would you call that my public speaking training in? uh, Mm. My public speaking training kicking in? I don't know. And by the way, there's a, there's just a very good book that I wanted to recommend, which is called Predictably Irrational by Dan Ariely, who does a lot of uh, research on mostly in the economic field, but not only uh, about um, how people think they're actually very clever, but mm. they're not. <laughs> That's a good, good recommendation. <laughs> there, there, there's really. an entire discussion that, you know, a couple of hashtags we could do for that. <laughs> <laughs> So, so the answer to that is mm. <laughs> our gut instinct is probably yeah, <laughs> but, but I mean this I it's it is slightly um, it is slightly concerning that so much of interpreting we don't have a clue about, if we're honest. Well, makes it fun, doesn't it? <laughs> Unpredictable. Yeah. Right, should we move on to the next question, guys? Yes, yep. let's do that. All right. So this is a very short question, but I think it's based on a oh, relatively sure. lengthy Twitter discussion that I apparently completely Definitely. missed out on. So the question is uh, from Tony Rosado at uh, IAPTI, at the IAPTI conference. And uh, I think you can probably find it somewhere on Twitter as well. I think that was a really lengthy Yeah, we'll, we'll provide the link. All right. Yeah. And the question is, is interpreting an industry? Yeah, so just just for some context, as Alex said, this was um, a presentation given by Tony at the Yapti conference in September, late September. Um, And I think he was, uh, yeah, talking about how interpreters can deal with, you know, what's what's going on in the industry that we are. Um, And one of the one of his slides was that he said, we are not an industry. And I think I I think I retweeted this and then a whole discussion whole discussion basically sprang from that because you're um, an influencer alex no that's not 
that wasn't the point. I'm just saying that some some people basically said, well, is that a question? Is that even an interesting question to ask? And Barry Olson said it's a question of semantics. Mm -hmm. And, you know, some people maybe like to see themselves as part of an industry and some don't. Um, then William White commented that barristers have assistants and paralegals preparing their cases, etc. Interpreters don't really gain much from assistants and don't hire them. Former is the industry, so the legal industry, later a profession. So there's, I guess you could come at, at this from, from a lot of different angles, but I think um, my impression was that it just makes some interpreters feel uncomfortable uh, to, to mm. call it an industry. Um, I don't know why that is. Maybe it's because um, some of us, we, we, we see interpreting maybe as a bit of a, a form of art, or I don't know, or a craft or a trade. I don't know. What, what's your take? <laughs> Oh no! Like I know these these whole, so this, fluffy. No, yeah, this whole thing like oh, interpreting is an art form, and it's just like get a grip, man. It's a job. Like it's a job. You're not painting the next Mona Lisa. I know there's like an art to interpreting, but yeah, this whole thing like oh, we're all artists in a way. Yeah, we we are artists because we make it look like we actually know what we're doing. That's an art to itself. Con artists. Yeah, con artists. There we go. <laughs> No, but um, okay, that's and going. Also, and also the fact that you actually like were to did I get that right that you were saying that if you're in an industry you like lawyers they have assistants yeah. and we don't and that's a difference. Yeah. I actually have colleagues that have assistants. Yeah. So like, you mean for text stuff or just in general? No, just in general. Like, whenever I send them an email, like I never get a response from them. I always get a response from their assistant because they have an assistant. Really? Yeah. That's interesting. If, oh. if if I had the cash, I would. Um, oh yeah, I was. <laughs> yeah, I, I think so. There's a couple of things going on. The sarcastic side of me, which I never let out to play. But this, hang no, on, guys. No. I think this might be controversial. What Jonathan is. <laughs> <laughs> please, don't put the word, please don't put the word controversial in those bingo cards for the live show. <laughs> um, so, so the sarcastic side of me says, if we have time to discuss that question, we're obviously not busy enough. <laughs> that yeah. is a um, very good point obviously. so like I don't think Bill Gates ever sits around in his pyjamas somewhere going am I in an industry or a profession or a sector no he's too busy with his billions under his seat uh, you know it's like he doesn't care um, now on the one hand I get why this is a discussion because there is a fear and possibly a justifiable fear about what you could call the industrialization of interpreting which is when you get you know, people start making interpreting call centers or remote interpreting studios with 150 interpreters in one place. And, mm. and it ends up being like the call center that I worked in for my first paid job. <laughs> that is industrialized interpreting. That I can see a problem with. There's enough research to show us that's not a good way to do interpreting, even if it has to be done that way in certain circumstances. Fine. I get. So that would be the, the commoditization the, of interpreting. Yeah, that, that'd be the, the you know commoditization, assembly mm. line stuff. And if you're going to say industry means assembly line, then I get why that's a problem. On the other hand, if you're just going to say industry is an economic sector where goods or services are produced for a market, for example, the language industry produces goods to do with uh, goods to do with languages or services to do with languages. The legal industry produces legal services, then by dictionary definition, it's an industry. Um, I've, my concern is that if we have this snooty thing that we're not an industry because we're too good to have that view of life, mm. 
then we are really insulting a big chunk of our own client base. Um, and if that is we an excellent point, Jonathan. And if we're going to say we're not an industry because we're artists, well, let, let's reel this back a bit. If you're a freelancer, first and foremost, you're a business. And yeah, if, exactly. if you ain't yeah. a business, first and foremost, get out because you're obviously charging low rates that no one else can, would want to match. You're a business first. You're a business which produces or offers uh, interpreting services to a market. Now, come on a minute. You can call it what you like, but that, you know this is the economic reality of interpreting. If you're a freelancer, you're a business offering interpreting services and ancillary services to a market. Yeah. What you call that is immaterial. How you behave in that role is far more important than the, the sticker you put on yourself. Yeah. Just one thought on the uh, what you what you said about the industrialization or commoditization of um, in interpreting. Of course, that kind of leads many people to think about, um, I guess, automize uh, automate. What do you call it? Automation. To think about the automation of interpreting, hence the machines mm. taking over. So maybe that's what makes some people uncomfortable with the term industry as well. And then another thought was that um, I think one of the comments, com one of the comments was that while interpreting, um, one of the comments was that industry also kind of implies that there are several different professions with different sort of levels of qualification in there. Um, and maybe not different qualifications, mm. but we certainly have different professions in the language industry. Mm. So there's translation and, and copy editing and I don't know, you know, a, a yeah. lot of, a lot of different things. So just, just a few random thoughts on that. So I'm going to, jump in with one more thing and I want to see how Alex Gansmeyer re, uh, responds to this. So ITI for a long while, but certainly uh, clearly while Sarah Bauer Mason was chair, has been very clear that we are a sectoral body, which means that we're not the Institute of Translators and Interpreters, we're the Institute of Translation and Interpreting. Interpreting. Yes. Yeah. So as a sectoral body, and this, you know, you can say sector and people don't complain as much, we cover the interests of this sector. Now, that's an interesting thing, because then if you start saying things like, I'm an interpreter, as an interpreter, I work in the language services sector, industry, whatever you want to call it, then actually you're saying that my sister or brother professions are translation, copy editing, and so on. And actually, hmm. we have common cause together on a whole lot of things. And then suddenly you can be more comfortable. So one of the services I'm beginning to offer clients is, you know, if I'm interpreting at a meeting and their conference is going to be in six languages, well, I should know enough translators to say, how about we translate your website and your agenda into the same languages that are going to be interpreted? And since I'm the project lead, then all the translations get fed back to the interpreters who, hey, presto, get their term lists for free out of the, the job. Hmm. Now that's you know, sector level thinking where it's not just about us as interpreters anymore. It's we're in the language services insert word here and we can work together because we actually have more in common than we have that tell us apart. Yeah. And I think that I, I seem to remember reading some call it business advice at some point that when somebody asks you what you do for a living, um, maybe you don't say I'm a translator or I'm an interpreter, but you try to phrase it as a as a verb so you say you know i help people 
communicate mm. just very on a very boring level but you try to mm. sort of frame it as something that you do and something that helps people or provides solutions or whatever that kind of thing I, so maybe that's I, I help companies that moves us away from the whole industry yeah. term if people aren't comfortable with it i, I help companies win international business there you yeah, go something like that yeah. so that's alex awfully vague <laughs> yeah, but, but i mean alex can smile well, but i like it. What, what's your take on you know that actually interpreters and translators and the other language services people could do a lot better working together than we can at the moment when everything in a lot of places is quite separated. I think the reality of the job is that a lot of the times we, we do work together. Um, like in that example that you just mentioned, I think that was a perfect example because that's exactly how it should be. Hmm. Um, but I also think that a reality of the fact is that sometimes so, okay, so in the language space, let's say, because we like that word so much, <laughs> um, let's say interpreting stands in the middle and to the left of it is translation, and then to the left of translation is copy editing, and to the left of that is whatever, but then mm. to the right of interpreting is something else then is to the right of, oh, no, hang on, that doesn't work because then, of course, on the right of translation. <laughs> okay, so I got totally lost on that metaphor, but basically, like, we have touch points to all of these professions <laughs> within the language space, but we also have touch points with other professions that have nothing whatsoever to do with those languages, with those other language jobs, right? So, for example, I could also say that um, if you are an organizing interpreter a lot, like, you, one of the sister professions you could argue is uh, event organizing, mm. right? Yeah, so absolutely. Obviously, that if you if you focus on that, or if you kind of tilt into that direction a little bit, that takes us further away from, from the translation side of things. So I think it really depends on who you are as an entrepreneur. Mm. And I think, as you've clearly mentioned, we are all entrepreneurs. Like we are businesses, yep. and quite frankly, I really couldn't care less if we are in the language industry, in the language business, in the interpreting industry. I I usually say the language industry because. Mm you know, that's just kind of all encompassing and that's exactly what I think it is. And it describes what you've mentioned. There's translation, there's copywriting or whatever. Um, and then there's interpreting. So I don't think. Yeah. But Alex, yeah. Aren't you actually a solopreneur or a, a lingopreneur or something like that? <laughs> <laughs> what well, wasn't lingopreneur the drummer for the Beatles? <laughs> <laughs> that's uh, not whatever, but I'm, I'm calling dibs on this new buzzword. <laughs> Lingopreneur, hashtag Lingopreneur. I like but, it. But, but then I, I actually get, I take Alex Kansmeyer's point about, um, you know, sure. to the other side of us, you know, we think about our sister professions being translators and interpreters, da, da, da. But I don't know if you realize, but recently I, I was um, interviewed for um, the MICE blog, which is Meetings, Incentives, Convention, something, events. Um, and the lady there who interviewed me, one of her favorite quotes that she actually put in full in, in the article was, think of your consultant interpreter just like a specialist event manager. That's because in a way, right. yeah, in I a like way, it, that's yeah. what we are. And so actually, interpreters sit in this weird, I'm not, I refuse to use the word space, this weird <laughs> position <laughs> where, okay. yeah, we, we are in the language industry, but we're also, we're in the language services thing. I don't know what word to use now, but we're also in the events thing because you can't get away from the fact that to interpret, at least in person, is to help in the management and the running of an event. Right, but that's not everybody. And I think that's yes. a very, very important thing to mention because I would put myself into that exact 
box that you just mentioned. Well, it's not actually a box because we're thinking outside the box, but <laughs> I'm I'm in that thing you just mentioned. Zone. Yeah, that's you mean in zone. that space? That space. In the, in the zone. Uh, yeah, I, th- I think yeah. you could probably call it a space. That interstices. <laughs> I'm putting myself into those lingopreneurial shoes. But um, <laughs> but I know for a fact that there's a lot of colleagues who don't do that. I know for a fact that there's a lot of colleagues that I know personally as well that don't organize anything. They are just being booked and then they do their job and they do it very well. And yeah. that's why they have continuous jobs, but they do not help in the running of an event because they just show up, they do their job, they don't consult the, the client, they just get booked and they do the job. And that's fine too. There's yeah, nothing exactly. wrong with that. But I think... I think like many things, we're all on a spectrum and yeah, I would just leave it at that. Well, I, I, my argument is that by being an interpreter, you are assisting in the running of an event the same way as the caterer is, the same way as the sound guy is, the same. That's right. Um, and it's why I'm, I'm becoming more and more keen on the idea of thinking of interpreting as something that an organization is doing. Actually, my, my newest phrase, which is I've now written as my research interest, is interpreting as organizational performance. Now, that, that sounds funny, but basically it is that sounds good. In, that sounds inter- right. interpreting as an organization doing something with an event for a purpose. Um, and one day, Deb's on it already, one day I'm going to write a really fancy academic book called Interpreting as Organizational Performance, and I've dibbed it already. Um, but Heard it the, first, people. The more that yeah. we see interpreting as organizations doing something with an event, I think the better we're able to interpret. Once I understand, even with, with recent ones, once I understand what this was about, I had a job recently, and my the entire function of my interpreting was to make it a nice experience for the rugby players who were there, and and their kind that of is the fan. most Scottish thing you've ever said. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, and like, totally. So, so no one actually was sitting down taking notes on the captain's after dinner speech. Of course, they weren't. They just wanted a nice time. And I'm not saying it would have been okay for me to just make stuff up because I didn't make anything up. But you realize that, you know, the pressures of that event are entirely different to the pressures of, I had a job a couple of years ago where I was in a a sales negotiation worth several million pounds. That's an entirely different setup. Yeah. Well, you would hope so, right? I mean. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, but lots of different things going on in the interpreting thing. Right. So we had. So should we should we, should we should we move on to the last yes. very substantial question? This, yeah, because um, this is going to take a while, right? I mean, but, yeah. do you know we were on that question so long? My Google Drive actually had to re- reload the page. <laughs> well, oh, but I think there's this. Yeah, we should probably just move on. But that was a really interesting question. I think it was a very short question, but you could take that in so many different directions, and I think we just touched yeah, on we, a few of them. We could probably revisit this at some yeah. point. Yeah, and, and I, I know I know fine well my quote about looking down on those at clients is going to end up in either end of the show somewhere. Yeah, probably going to be very controversial, Jonathan, do you think? <laughs> you, you, oh, wait, okay. you wait until London. I'm going to buy you embarrassing no. baseball caps. <laughs> okay, we'll, we'll move on to the, to the last uh, very substantial. It was more like a comment, actually, but there's, there's good stuff in there that we can discuss. Yeah. Um, this comes from Ahmed Tauman, and he, uh, he left a, a very nice comment on our blog post about this episode um and he 
he's an interpreter on the Arabic market, mm. um, if I understood correctly, and describes sort of some of the difficulties um, that he's encountering. He says that the market that he works in is is not really professional, it's immature. Um, many clients just looking at the cheapest uh, or the lowest bid. Um, there, there aren't really any standards when it comes to recruiting interpreters, to training, hiring interpreters. Um, although in, he says that interpreting is very important for the entire region. Um, and what we've done here is we tried to extract a few sort of questions or, or topics mm. from from his uh, from his comment. And the first That's one right. was that. How could we as a network of professional interpreters educate clients on this difference? This difference being the difference between someone who knows what they're doing and someone who does not know what they're doing. I and guess. they're just being cheap. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Who wants to go first? <laughs> well, I can't say much on this. It's more of a freelancer question. I yeah. Think. But the thing is, I mean, you, and so my point is that, you know, we do, and we do educate clients on a daily basis, right? Because most people have no idea who we are and what we're doing and why we're doing it and how yeah. we can do it. Um, so you translate simultaneously, huh? <laughs> synchronously, Alex. Synchronously. Um, and to be fair, Alex, I think that also applies probably to a lesser extent to the European Union, but you also educate it people does, yeah. a lot, you know, yeah. as to how they should speak. And yes. I mean, nobody probably ever listens just like in our market, but um, <laughs> I think we educate them on a daily basis and, yeah, like, why shouldn't we? Why should they know what we're doing? So I think just take it kind of one client at a time. Try mm. if, if they contact you, they obviously want something from you, right? Like they want your service. So you should probably take that time and um, yeah. explain it a little bit. Or see, or for, first, you should probably see if the client already has experience. If they're saying, okay, we're going to have an event where we require consecutive interpretation for three 15-minute intervals with coffee breaks in between, you could probably yeah. have like a feeling that, okay, they haven't done this for the first time. This is their first time at the rodeo, if you know what I mean. But um, We do. <laughs> but, um, that went downhill. <laughs> <laughs> but um, if you kind of can gauge from the way that they interact with you and the kind of the, the, the information that they give or don't give that they haven't done this a lot, then you can kind of jump in there and start edifying the client. And I hate this word because... Edifying. Like, yeah, there's no proper way to translate the word in German and that's why I keep using it in English where it's a totally appropriate <laughs> word to use. So, um, yeah. yeah. I come at this completely the opposite way and it's come as a result of doing business networking and seeing the interest at trade shows. I'm not sure I get... I like the term educating clients. Um, yeah, it's a bad term. So a couple of things going on here. One, we have this superiority complex coming in. Um, mm -hmm. And my, I've become very aware recently that I probably know more about interpreting than my clients. They know far more about what they want out of their meeting than I do. Agreed. And so rather than coming in with, we, here's a whole lot of information, here's how you have to do it, my take is, well, let's find out first what it is they're trying to do. And then from what we understand from what they're trying to do, then discuss with them business to business the best way for them to do it. And it may not necessarily mean, you know, for example, the worst thing that I've seen people do is, is come in with, with kind of giant boots and say, you have to run this simultaneously as well. Do they have to, you know, is simultaneous interpreting the best interpreting for that setup? For example, if it's a kind of, I don't know, discussion forum and it's kind of like a round table thing, then you could argue 
so long as it's managed well, that you could do kind of dialogue style interpreting there and the clients might prefer it because they might prefer to have the interpreter there with them. They might prefer to see the interpreter. You know, when um, when Donald Trump and President Putin were meeting, sorry, Donald Trump and the, the President uh, Kim were meeting from North Korea, I don't think anyone went up to them and said, you know what, guys, you, you need a simultaneous interpreting booth here. You need two interpreters in the booth. You, you didn't, no one did that. And I know, you know, very few of us work for presidents day in and day out, but can we not have a bit of respect for our clients and start with asking questions before we, you know, smack them with standards? Let's say, okay, so I now have a standard brief. It's available on my website. I will send a link. It's, you know, there's a blank version that interpreters can use. Translate it into your language, send it to the client. And clients love it that you're asking them all these questions because you then look professional. Then you get the brief back and from the brief, you can tell very quickly, what is the most, the best way to do this that will achieve the result the client want? And then you go with that. And when you exactly. explain, when you explain yeah. it in those terms, it's a whole lot easier to have the conversation. This just reminded me of a, a tweet and I, Oh, I found it right now. So there was a um, an AIC event on during the weekend in Rome, and Barry Olson was speaking there. And he had a he had a slide um, which I think was taken from one of these audience interaction tools, Slido maybe, where you sort of ask questions at the end of an event. And the, the question here was working with interpreters is, and then people were uh, supposed to fill in words. Oh Jesus! And the the th yeah, wait for it. The three biggest words that come up are challenging, frustrating. Difficult, and then it goes on. Stressful, hard, yeah. interesting. Interesting <laughs> is good. So, yeah, unless just as, an, just as an additional data point, yeah. as it were. So, there was a wonderful article written by uh, a Munich-based interpreter for who wrote in the IT bulletin an article about don't not being a diva. <laughs> no, no, no. I, I totally. Now, can I start with? I totally understand the. You know, technically in the UK, it's kind of an immature market. I totally understand the impulse to push for standards and push for qualifications. It's totally fine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Great. <laughs> but you can't force the clients to do something. You actually need to get their buy-in. Yeah, yeah, and so right. actually, the greatest way to bring a standard in is for the clients that you work with to realize the last time we did it, your way, it went so much better. Can we have you back? In the meantime, yeah, it's horribly frustrating that people undercut and do things they shouldn't. Absolutely, I agree with it. Even happens in the UK. What? Totally, I'm, I, <laughs> sorry. I, I, I'm, I'm totally fine with people getting annoyed at that. I, I get it. But if our standards are correct, then eventually the client should say we don't want to do it that way. If, if there's some hmm. reason for our standards, then the clients themselves should have the impulse to say, that was garbage, how do we fix that? And there's no greater client than one who came to you and said, the last time we had an interpreter, it was garbage, can you show me how to fix it? That's a dream client. Yep. Yeah. If on the other hand, our standards are just to make us comfortable, the clients are never going to accept them anyway, so let's forget, let's forget all about them. 
Yeah, I think that that kind of segues into the next question as well, which was about um, pricing. We probably can give a very brief answer to this one. Is there a way to standardize pricing on a national no. level? I've personally no. worked on no, 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 no. Bear with me. I've personally worked on developing a pricing scheme which outlines all criteria for selecting mm. and compensating interpreters. I think that makes sense. Yes. But when yeah. it comes to price fixing, I'm going to uh, call it that way. I think it's it's a straight no, especially yes uh, from uh, from you me alex because this was tried in germany a couple of times and it never worked and it's basically a, an absolute no no now yeah and it? it was tried you know previously and then the what was it the european court of justice actually got involved some antitrust authorities because some some know, mysterious yeah. uh, in, na, international interpretation interpreting body tried to uh, impose a price well, fixed, more, more or less fixed price points, and that just didn't work. So, yeah, on a yeah. national level, you can't do that. But I actually forgot to mention on the on the previous point, but this could it links directly into this point, because um, he was saying that he's already worked on developing his own pricing scheme with outlines and criteria and everything, and um, that's fantastic. And if you want to educate the client or Jonathan or what, what was the, what was the word they used? You didn't say educate. You said uh, no, work, work, you with, work, with, them. Them. work yeah. with them and um, you know, kind of bring them on the same page. You can do the same thing with colleagues of yours. It doesn't have to be an official interpreting association. I know plenty of interpreters who have gotten together on, you know, online and then formed some sort of a network. It doesn't even have to be on a contractual basis. It doesn't have to be an official company. You guys can just have sort of a one, you know, one website and each of you covers a different region. And then you guys can fix your own pricing amongst each other's. That's fine. Um, just don't do it on the website and say, this is like the official pricing point. But you, are, you guys are all entre- yeah. entrepreneurs, so you can set your own standards for yourselves. And then if you have a bunch of colleagues that do this, maybe it'll catch on. I, I, I think also the, the people tend to quote um, oh, Adam Smith and say, you know, professionals never get together but to fix prices. And so I, I, I'm wary of, I understand the impulse towards set price levels, but I'm wary of it because, again, it, it's interpreting is for the clients. Now, we don't, you know, some of our regulations and stuff and conditions are there for good reasons. So you shouldn't be doing simultaneous interpreting for two hours straight off by yourself. On your own. To, totally, yeah, absolutely. There's good reason for that. But, you know, there's no, if you have colleagues who are doing it for 50% cheaper, then there's two things you can do. You can either try to push them off the market or you can say, well, what can I do? Yeah, to, good luck to, with that. Yeah, what can I do to justify that extra price? So there are far there's far more scope to your your own business. You can do whatever pricing model you like, so long as the clients will pay for it. Right, but there's a there's a point to be made for for that. But also, you should be really careful because if you do yeah. play around with the with the pricing models too much. Um, you might be rubbing a lot of people the wrong way and you don't want to get on all of your colleagues' bad sides because you're, you know, imagine you go out onto the commission job and then the deal goes south and then you've basically ended up working a whole day for free and then yeah. somebody else didn't get the job who would have been paid. So there are points to be yeah. made for both sides. So just do be careful, do be considerate about all these options. But yeah, just get together with a few colleagues who are like-minded and uh, you guys can set your own standards. I mean, yeah. I'm sure that 
while it is an immature market, as, as Ahmed was saying, and uh, there's not a lot of standardization going on, I'm sure that a lot of colleagues still work similarly. And there are some people that have the same standards and have the same mindset. And you can get together with those people and kind of represent yourselves. And then eventually the client will see, hey, it's not just this one guy or these two people. It's actually five. 10 people and not just in one city, it's actually in three, five, 10 cities. Oh, maybe there's something yeah. to it as to how they actually behave and comport themselves on a business level. So yeah. I think that's something that you can do. And that's, yeah. I think that's actually something that he, he touched on uh, in his, in his mm -hmm. last um, remark, right? Because um, this basically, he said that there's currently no active association yeah. government entity that overlooks the entire translation interpreting industry. Um, the, apparently the ministry of justice does some accreditation, but it's only a formal test and, uh, it's not really all that useful and there's no monitoring. So that basically, uh, I think that sounds a bit like a job description for a professional association. Right. Wow. Yeah. Although you, you put some figures in here. Yeah, 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 I did. About, I put some uh, figures I, down about, you know, because the only, the, basically the only two bodies that I could think of that would be acting internationally is AIC and FEET. And AIC has um, about a hundred members in the different um, Arabic region. So in Middle East, it has 41 members. In the GCC states, it has 15, four, sorry, 14 mm. members and then 87 members in the League of Arab States. So there are some people there that I'm sure you could get in touch with. Some of them, I'm sure he has gotten in touch with, but, mm. you yeah, know, probably. especially if they're in AIC, I think they already have sort of a mindset about certain standard conditions that have to be met in terms of working conditions and qualifications, yeah. not necessarily pricing, but that's not the only thing uh, that, that, that matters necessarily. So I'm sure you can reach out to a lot of those people and get in touch with them and then do their own thing on the market. Mm. Yeah. I'm not so sure about feet though, because they, they are more, uh, they're an umbrella association of professional associations. Yeah, that's so, uh, exactly. That's as, as for associations, you have to separate a, a regulator from an association. Okay. Associations yeah. are not yeah. there necessarily to tell people what to do. In fact, a lot of associations would resist becoming a regulator. Um, regulators are the people who set the standards and say, you know, you lose your license if you don't do this. And the problem with regulators is they're necessarily conservative. Yeah. They have to be. Um, associations, a good association is should be creative and should be thinking not just about standardization stuff. They can do that if they want, although normally we would leave that to regulators, but associations are more about... It's more like certification. Yeah, maybe. Well, more about raising the profile, more about kind of defining what does it mean to be an interpreter here? What does it mean to be a translator? Pushing for the interests of that sector. And I think the problem is when you conflate the work of an association with the work of a regulator, you always end up in conflict of interest. You always end up in antitrust stuff because people start thinking that their association should be a union, which again is a completely, a completely different thing as well. Yeah, but that is actually let's not, let's not controversial. And I actually yeah. think that that is very controversial because I do think that, at least to some extent, that associations do take on the role of a regulator. And they should, I think, because as you've mentioned, they, they're basically the closest thing that we have to trade unions. Mm -hmm. And they basically try to define what good working conditions are for us in order for us to deliver the best client, the best service to the client. So I do think there's mm -hmm. a, there's a, a, a case we made for associations regulating. I'm not saying they should be the regulator, but I'm saying they should. I, I would say, I would say associations should regulate their members. So yes. the difference is a regulator regulates the entire industry <laughs> sector. So, so, so for example, 
So, for example, a regulator would do something like, um, in an ideal world, say there was a regulator for legal interpreting. The regulator is not just regulating the interpreters, but saying, this is how legal interpreting will be done. Whereas an association normally says, this is how our members will behave. It's a subtle distinction. So it's like code of ethics or code of conduct. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, uh, and so now some associations, I know certainly uh, SFT in France, see themselves as more of a union and you can go down that route. Personally, I find that if you go too far down the union route, then it, it can be difficult to do both the union work and the external PR, uh, kind of positive PR. Yeah, union, absolutely. Un, union work and lobbying is perfect and is perfectly compatible. Union work and the positive PR, raising the profile thing, is harder because you're then going to the very people that you were telling off five minutes ago and saying, and you should love us. Yeah. <laughs> really? That's kind of, yeah. kind of difficult. But yeah, so, so yeah, um, to actually go back to the question, go back to, you know, w work as a team together, but definitely I would say think first about through the eyes of your clients and through the eyes of your potential clients what are the, the working practices that are going to allow you to deliver the best service for them for the events they're putting on? And what kind of team do you need to build, to bring together to be able to do that? So for example, you know, we might think about, you know, let's standardize working hours, let's standardize um, booth size, let's standardize breaks. Okay. But how about compiling a list of approved sound equipment suppliers? It's great for clients because then they know straight away that, that the sound equipment guys are going to be good and it's good for you because obviously you'd approve them because they're giving you kit that you can work with. Right. That's actually a thing already yeah. in Germany, yeah, right, Germany, Alex? So the Falkade yeah, has yeah, that, yeah. A, a list of... Yeah, we have a list like that. But uh, yeah. I actually also want to go back to, to what he was saying in his question about the Ministry of Justice and how they, uh, mm. they do like some sort of accreditation test. And he was saying that they are merely formal. And... Um, Alex, this, I, I want to allow you this question your way because the EU does an accreditation test, but I don't think that's yes. just a formal test, right? Well, I'm not quite sure what he meant by, by formal. So did he so, mean that it's, yeah. it's too easy and everybody can pass? The way that I understood it is basically they just check your, they just check your I don't know, diplomas or your background and oh, it's just kind I of see. like a formality yeah. Thing. I don't know if that's correct, that but that's kind sense, of how I yeah. how I would understand well, it. Well, so uh, in the Europe, so hang on, so just yeah. sorry, Jonathan, but in in European yeah. Union, it's different, right? Because they actually check your skills and how you present yourself and you, your yeah, you take an actual test, right? Um, and and depending, uh, oh God, I have to, I'm not quite quite up to speed on what the accreditation test is like on whether you whether you need to have a diploma or whether it's enough to. Uh, to show that you have some experience. I'm not quite sure, but yeah, you, ha you have to go through the formal step and then you do the actual exam and you need to be able to show that you know how to interpret. Right. And they also fine tune the test probably and they see what's working, what's not working. And it's not been, the, it's, it, oh, yeah. it's not the same yeah. test that it was like 10 years ago. No, and you get a different speaker every time, right. and there's a different speeches, of course. I mean, the, the, the test overall doesn't change that much. I mean, there's, there's going to be yeah, a of <laughs> consecutive speech and a simultaneous yeah. speech. No, of course, of um, course. But so yeah. what? Because I, I was thinking, you know, if he knows the the this is about Ahmed's very specific situation, but I'm I was thinking if mm. he you know already has some context in the Ministry of Justice, maybe he can get himself onto that that uh, testing board and 
kind of like tweak it in a little bit of a way that he thinks would be more appropriate instead of just formal Maybe, yeah. testing and kind of improve it in that way, improve it for everyone, for himself, because then obviously the colleagues mm. would have uh, a higher level of professionalism, whatever that may mean, and also improve yeah. it for the Ministry of Justice because they would get better people. So if you can get an in on that, maybe that could be an angle that, to, to, yeah. to work. I think also, so there's different views on testing. So for example, there are tests in the UK and I have to be very careful because I don't want to put my foot in it, but there is a, a test exam thing done in the UK and it only tests your interpreting from what I can tell or, or certainly it tests your interpreting and the knowledge of the field that you'll be interpreting in which is fine but the problem is is if you have a setup which is just an exam as in you just have to know how to interpret but you know that, that's all the topic but so if that's what he's meaning by formal like it's just a test and if you pass that test if you interpret well enough in the test you're an interpreter i get the concern and then that becomes a job of the profession to socialize people um and that process is by no means by no means refined we don't quite know how to do it properly yet but you know maybe one place to start and we've given you a lot of places to start i mean but maybe one place to start is to look at who's offering any sort of training or events for interpreters and if no one is you do it and, yes, you know, advice, you know yeah. so if no one's offering i don't know a facebook group for interpreters in your country start one start there um, yeah if, if exactly. no one's offering a you know, a one-day course, you know, there are people that, that we know well who quite happily come in and do a course on what does it mean to be an interpreter and negotiation for interpreters. We know someone who does a brilliant course on negotiation for interpreters. And, you know, it costs a bit the first time out. But when you get one training event and you get six people there, those six people have then been socialized into the values of interpreting then they're going to go out into the people they know and they're going to socialize other people. And spread the word. Yeah. yeah. And so you start with something small. And if you think, okay, it's too much to go to the Ministry of Justice, it's too much to do this or that. Well, okay, start a Facebook group and say, okay, guys, how about we go for dinner somewhere and we just chat amongst interpreters over dinner? It's actually a surprisingly good way to socialize and spread the word about stuff. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Just going for drinks or for yeah. dinner or whatever. Yeah, and, and like, you know, I've I went temp and bowling with some local interpreters, and I'm now thinking that I should go temp and bowling with more interpreters. Also, they laughed at me because you know if the little lane side things aren't up, I can't score. Um, <laughs> but you, you know, it's it you 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 find it very quickly who's serious. You find it very quickly who's interested in growing, and you know even influencers had to start somewhere, and just try. <laughs> try you know maybe maybe just maybe as interpreters we try to do the standardization before we do the socialization and maybe that's the wrong way around maybe we do the socialization first we build the values first and from those values come the standards yeah. maybe if we did it that way around we would actually get client buy-in because they're buying into something more than an iso standard booth they're buying into a set of values that they can say we believe in that too so maybe Ahmed really is is in a in a very good situation because he gets the chance to set standards and uh, or in, a, in a, not in a literal way but you know uh, shape the profession yeah. in a way that that is maybe different or or exciting or whatever. He's going Excellent. to be the influencer in his country. Absolutely, that's actually a really cool position to be in. 
put that on a t-shirt yeah excellent right. but I, I hope he finds that he finds that useful we certainly gave him a lot of he gave us a lot of food for thought and maybe we gave him some yeah. in return um and a few pointers to where he can where he can start yeah so i don't know about you two but this this felt almost like several episodes in one yes <laughs> there was so much I interesting th- stuff we, we can i think we may end up doing ask us anything part one ask us anything part two uh, like yeah, nearly we'll two hours <laughs> we'll see oh as i said we'll put chapter markers in and then you can just <laughs> jump to the next question if you want to yeah. although you would miss out on a lot of good stuff that so is there very you go. right yeah anyway thanks to both of you this this was another really really fun episode and uh if i recall correctly the last one before the live event and i must say i'm, I'm getting slightly nervous <laughs> <laughs> but also excited about the live event. So I think we have we have everything in place. We have a program. We have a special guest. We have all the gear in place. And I hope I can get it safely to the other side of the channel. <laughs> well, it does look rather um, suspicious. <laughs> yeah, no, it'll be fine. So um, I'm really looking looking forward to that. Um, any closing remarks from you two, Alex and Jonathan? Uh, guys, let us know what you thought of our answers, because I'm actually really looking... Uh, yeah. Looking forward to getting some sort of reactions to what we've been rambling on for almost two hours. Yeah. And if you have any and more if, questions. If you want us to do this again, yeah. yeah exactly. Yeah. Send if more, you have questions. Any more questions. Do send them our way and we'll be happy to do another hour episode. I, I, exactly. I, I also want to say that occasionally we do highlights episodes. I don't know if we'll manage to do one next year. We have no clue. But um, occasionally we do kind of highlights of the past year and so on. And the last time we did it, we picked our highlights and we went through every episode we'd done until that point. Yeah. I would love to see like a, a listener's choice episode where you tell us what you thought was what you thought was good. And, That'd be cool, and, yeah. and then, then we do like a kind of your choice episode because actually we really would love more comments and more feedback. Um, criticisms as well as positives, but you know, of course, catch the criticisms in, in nice comments. You know, I really love your show. There's just this one tiny thing you should do. Please stop. And then you go on a half hour rant. Yeah, please <laughs> stop, Jonathan, making jokes. <laughs> yeah, that's 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 actually a very very good idea. So if you want to do that for me, not making jokes. No, I mean. People should just uh, hit us up on social media and provide uh, positive and negative feedback. We're open to, to all of that. Um, so you can find us on Twitter at TroubleTurps and on Facebook as well, facebook.com slash TroubleTurps. All of the former episodes and everything else, basically everything, anything and everything is on the website, TroubleTurps.com. And the next time you hear from us, it'll be a live, well, It'll be a live episode if you're in London and we're really looking forward to seeing you there. Or you can, of course, listen to the recording of the live episode later on. So that's it for tonight. And we'll say bye-bye. 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 <laughs> I'm about to join Instagram, so I really need to get over the joke. Oh, my God. <laughs> but how do you put dead jokes up on Instagram? Oh, trust me. I have great meme pages that I can send you. With put dead jokes? Oh, yeah. Okay. Are you two already on Instagram? Oh, please. I live on Instagram. Like, my whole life is on Instagram. What are you talking about? I was there for about a year and then I left. I just didn't see it. it it's not for me. I'm going to see if I can use it to get some clients. But anyway. Oh, well, yeah. that's not what I use it for at all. Actually, <laughs> LXG uses it to lose clients. <laughs> pretty much, yeah. Pretty much. <laughs> you, your entire Instagram feed is just pictures of Beyonce and Britney. Yeah. 
and food and travel location. Uh, That's pretty much it. Yeah. yeah. I could do like in- inspirational dad quotes. That would be. Cool. I, I think that would get clients. There's no such thing as an inspirational dad quote. I was wondering what that was going to be, but yeah. Sounds, sounds, sounds I'm like dad. I'm allowed to say that, Jonathan. <laughs> are you saying dads aren't inspirational? No. Hey. They're, they're coping. That's what they are.